0: I would like to ask what you think the real value of role playing games has been, because you were there at the beginning um, and you've seen it through. So, you know, what's been the value of it?
1: Well, the value of it to the socially inept young teenager is it can save your life, right? It, it can show you that you're not alone. And it can teach you to work. It teaches you not just to work with others like work, but that cooperating with others is fun. Yeah.
2: Uh,
1: it gets you talking. Uh, it, I have heard from many people over the years who say that without role playing, they, they don't think they could have continued. Say
2: Hello and welcome. My name is
0: Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering your lost roleplaying hobby. I get out of bed every day as a high school teacher. The reason I enjoy life is because I get to create communities of discovery in which people can feel accepted for who they really are. Roleplay Rescue is my attempt to create a new community in which we will discover how to take back our roleplaying hobby and make it fun for everyone. And that's why, in March 2019, I started the Patreon community and invited listeners of this podcast to support me. Because my intention has always been to bring people together, the goals of the Patreon have always been focused around the number of patrons, not the money. At the tail end of season five, I invited listeners to help us hit the 30-patron goal and offered as a reward that I would approach and invite a tabletop role-playing luminary onto the show for an interview. Even better than that, I offered to run a patron-only poll to decide which luminary to approach. We smashed through the goal in about a week, a fantastic encouragement to me, and the person that I am interviewing today was the first and loudest request from the patrons. Thank you to my guest for agreeing to come on the show. Thanks also, have to go, to Douglas Cole from Gaming Ballistic, who was kind enough to make an introduction for me to my guest. Thanks also to all 32 of the patrons. Who made this possible this is the season 6 30 patron bonus episode talking to steve jackson
2: Rescue.
0: steve jackson is the founder and president of steve jackson games a premier publisher of books games and magazines for the discerning gamer well-known games include ogre the fantasy trip car wars gurps and munchkin Steve's first professional design work was for Metagaming, which published his Ogre, its sequel, GEV, Malay, Wizard, and several other games. In 1980, Steve bought the rights to Ogre and the Space Gamer magazine from Metagaming and started his own company. That company, Steve Jackson Games Incorporated, is now 40 years old. In 1982, he became the youngest game designer to be inducted into the Origins Awards Hall of Fame. Steve is a dedicated SF reader and fan and enjoys attending both gaming and sf conventions welcome to the show and thank you for joining us thank you so 40 years of steve jackson games and as i uh, sit here I, i'm sort of reflecting in the last few years some pretty huge kickstarter campaigns um ogre and uh, we've had dungeon fantasy car wars and of course the fantasy trip and as we speak there's the last what 9 uh, nine ten days or so of the um undead supplement for the fantasy trip going right now must yes, be and, a good and, time
1: <laughs> and also a solo adventure and this is a very good time for a solo adventure
0: oh absolutely uh, so how are you feeling about things is business good
1: uh, business is terrible. Business is awful. There's, uh, there's no denying that the pandemic has touched everyone's life. Mm. Uh, our offices are closed now. Everyone is working remotely. Mm. We made sure not to lay anyone off because the great majority of our staff can continue to be productive at home. Mm. But we cannot ship a physical order to a buyer we're shipping Mm. out of pdfs and so on of course because that happens automatically yeah but uh trying times
0: indeed but um wonderful of you to put malay out um on pdf for free well that thank you that
1: seemed like the thing to do
0: yeah, I mean, there's always lots of freebie bits up on uh, Warehouse 23 anyway. And, um, of course, another groundbreaking piece of uh, piece of business, if I remember correctly. Uh, one of the first, if not the first, to do PDF products? Uh,
1: yes, we, we, we were fairly early in. We had technical problems that uh, slowed us down by many, many months, mm-hmm. or we'd have a much more commanding position in the marketplace.
0: <laughs> yeah but i um, know i'm um, just on the point of malay i mean and I, I know it's just a great way into the fantasy trip it's the way it was back in what 77 and um you know i'm sure that uh, that's a product that with the legacy edition has you know continued to be a success for you i would if i may like to take you right back to the beginning and sort of talk through some of that and then obviously talk a little bit more about the more recent stuff um can I, can I ask like how you first got started with games and gaming generally? Oh,
1: that would have been when I was very little, playing uh, games like Monopoly with the family yeah. and then playing multiplayer games, like very multiplayer games like Chinese Checkers with uh-huh. the full six points taken when the cousins got together.
0: And I know that in um, previous conversations, you mentioned they used to play games like Risk and Diplomacy. Um, yes, as well
1: there was a great deal of that when i got to college there wasn't a lot of gaming in high school because that was pre-dungeons and dragons mm-hmm. we got in some good chess games and we played on the school's computer one computer at the school
0: oh fantastic those were the days i bet that filled a room or something didn't it
1: no it wasn't quite that big it had <laughs> a room dedicated to it But it wasn't until I got to Rice that I played games on a computer whilst inside the computer.
0: Wow. Okay. I can't even begin to imagine. I mean, my first experience with computers was my dad building a tangerine in about I know must be in the late seventies, I would as well, something like that. You know, the um, really early kind of do-it-yourself kits. But um...
1: right. Uh, This was at Rice University. They had a very cutting-edge experimental computer going on there Mm. and it was so big that it filled up it filled up the whole room all the walls of the room Mm. and the operator station was right inside (laughs) that room and uh, you could use it to play a game that nowadays would not hold your interest for more than 10 minutes very simple
0: so with diplomacy was that something where you experienced the sort of role-playing elements that people Sort of now, look back on and talk about, you know, with the interaction between players. That game obviously is, a, you know, have a, is a game where you will have those kind of deals and things going on. But was that something that you know you experienced moving uh, towards role playing?
1: Yes, I I would always make a decision very very early on mm. whether mm. I was going to be an honourable player or a stinker, okay. and and I would stick to it.
0: And so at college, what was your? I mean, you did Risk and Diplomacy. Any other games of note um, in yes. that period?
1: We played the SPI series of games. Uh, oh wow! An awful lot of games of Borodino, and I mm-hmm. played Strategy One, which was certainly an influence on my later work.
0: Okay, Strategy One's not what I'm too familiar with.
1: That's uh, it's essentially a toolkit for making hex and chip games. Right. It has- lots of alternate sets of rules for the same situation.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: you pick one from column A and one from column B and so on and so mm-hmm. on, and now you are in a Napolec- Napoleonic simulation. You pick another from column A and another from column B, and now you are at Kursk in World War Two, and so
2: wow. on. Wow.
0: Fantastic. It must have really inspired the tinkering nature of a game designer.
1: Yeah. yes, yes. Dunagan so, and Simonson uh, have a lot of my gratitude for their early work.
0: Yeah, Maybe that that customization work. was that something that sort of you carried on when you started. I mean, obviously with Gerps, for example, as a later role playing game, that's you know entirely designed to be customizable by the uh, the GM. Is that yeah. sort of where that comes from? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So. Um, Moving forward a little bit, you worked in 76, 77 on Monsters, Monsters with Ken St. Andre. Uh, Your first paid job with metagaming, was that? My first paid
1: job. It was wonderful.
0: (laughs) I can imagine. Um, And then in 77, you wrote Ogre. Yes. Uh, What was the inspiration for that game?
1: That was inspired by the Keith Laumer Bolo series, Mm -hmm. which is uh, stories about very, very big tanks indeed, uh, uh, much bigger than ogres, in fact. Uh, The the original plan was to do a licensed game, but that didn't work out. The license was too expensive for a little company like Metagaming. So management came back to me and said, Steve... Is there enough in that game that you can change it and still have something publishable? Uh-huh. And I said, yes, yes, thank you, because I was finding it very hard to write a game that was both fun and true to the Bolo stories. They right. are wonderful stories, but uh, you may remember the Straczynski quote about how the Star Fury fighters and Bad Five move at the speed of plot. Yeah. They always get just... They they go just as fast as they need to for that story. Well, many of the abilities of the super tanks in the Bolo stories uh, were written to go with that story, mm. and finding something consistent was challenging me. So I was just as glad to start over and give all. All thanks and respect to Bolo for going first, but then go my own way with the Ogre story.
0: Yeah. And, of course, you followed that with GEV, and that's the game I remember most. I remember playing Ogre and GEV with my dad. Um, I must have been, you know, probably about eight or nine. It's a little bit after its release, obviously, over in the UK. But um, remember those games very, um, very clearly, you know, and, and being obsessed with it. I, actually, I think I stole my dad's copy of GEV. Oh, um, um, never yeah. mind.
1: Have to buy him another one.
0: Yeah, but I mean, uh, so taking it from ogre into G.E.V. Um, that obviously you know, moves away from the bolo concept, and so that was must have been the development of your own uh, sort of IP. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think in an earlier conversation we had, you mentioned that you sort of view ogre as a as a role playing game. Yeah. Explaining it, that it
1: can very much be a role playing game if you mm. if you take the side of the ogre then you are this gigantic drone killing machine. Yeah. You have no consciousness. You have no intelligence. You just have great competence at destroying.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's
1: all right if you destroy because that's what you were made for.
2: Right.
1: Um, then on the other hand, if you play the defender side, you I mean every, every unit is alive, every unit is manned, and the only way you will win this battle, and you can win, but is by constant sacrifice.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I remember it being quite tough to make those decisions playing the sort of humans, you know, and uh, a lot of throwing people in at the right time, really. Yes. Yeah, yeah, very, very challenging. Um, yes. And obviously, that's now become an absolute classic. I mean, it's about five, six years ago, the the reissue of that. That's right. The big big
1: Kickstarter campaign. It came close to a million dollars. And if we had kept setting stretch goals, we certainly would have exceeded a million dollars. But we looked at the situation and realized that we were already overcommitted Mm. and it would not be fair to the backers to continue to think of other things to do.
0: Yeah, and you've always been uh, very consistent with that, you know, like making sure all the way through that it's affordable, that you can deliver on those things, which I I think is something that I have been a backer of many projects with you over the years. And, um, you know, it's something we, I think, always appreciate, that honesty and and straightforwardness.
1: Well, it's like diplomacy, and I decided a long, long time ago that I was going to play game designer as a good guy.
0: (laughs) Great analogy, fantastic. So the historians allege in 77 you were kind of increasingly involved in role-playing games, um, and that was what led to the creation of Malay. So how true is that then?
1: Oh, that's completely correct. At Metagaming, we had a company campaign going on uh, Mm -hmm. in Dungeons & Dragons because that and Tunnels & Trolls were about the only options right then. Mm. One of the game designers at Metagaming, Robert Taylor, was a very skilled and entertaining D&D, yeah, and we played for a long time in his campaign. So I was not happy with the way combat worked in D&D. Right. And I set out to create a combat system that was more like what I was familiar with, was he- with Hex and Chips, mm. where the facing of the heroes actually made a difference and if you weren't careful, the orcs would get behind you and so on and so on.
0: Yeah, I mean, very much a game of maneuver, isn't it? And, um, yeah. you know, I think that's one of the things. It's a very simple set of rules in some ways, but actually incredibly difficult to master. So what was it that you really didn't like about the D&D kind of combat approach? Was it just to stand there and hit?
1: Yes, it was stand there and hit. And I mean, once once you're in a room, everyone just says what they're doing mm. There's never a question of, well, can the archer actually see that orc? Or mm. if there are 20 orcs in the room, why don't any of them get behind you and get a bonus?
2: Yep.
1: And uh, how is the thief getting backstab bonuses? Uh, D&D was too, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Too stylized for my taste.
0: Right. yeah. I always talk about it being a high level of abstraction and, um, Abstract, you know,
1: is a very good word, too.
0: Yeah. I, I, I always find, you know, it's something I don't know. I, I go back and forth on this on a personal level. I think sometimes there's a simplicity to that. But if you want to get immersed in a game, I think that that can be quite damaging. So um, I always feel torn. Um, <laughs> but um,
1: nope. don't have but, to play the same game every time.
0: No, so it was built really as a sort of uh, alternative combat system for Dungeons & Dragons. That was the sort that, of initial... Right. Yeah, I guess you had to pitch that one to metagaming? Yes, um,
1: but they were enthusiastic.
0: And, and I mean, I've always assumed that the, the sort of move, you know, melee was a first step towards what became the fantasy trip. Um, Wizard came next. I'm presuming that was an incremental intention.
1: It, it was incremental, uh... By the time I was well along into development of Melee, I was thinking about what magic might look like. Yeah. I have some of the original notes that have survived all these years. Wow. But looking at those notes, I think I was thinking more about a magazine article, perhaps, than a separate game. Right, yeah. so along the line, it turned into a separate game. And from then, it was... An extremely long step, actually, (laughs) to to a complete role-playing system.
0: So, what do you think was um, different? You know, what was innovative about uh, the the Malay game?
1: Uh, Spending points to create your character rather than rolling him up on the dice.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I, I guess that really does precede pretty much anyone else. I'm thinking that the next nearest is probably Champions, and that's the early 80s, isn't it?
1: Right. That and the use of Hex and Chit to mm. represent individual characters.
0: So was a miniature something you used in your games of Dungeons & Dragons with your friends at metagaming?
1: Yes, I still have some very crude uh, paintings, or some very crude painted miniatures that I used back in the day. That I recently cleaned up. And uh, the only ones that I can recognize now are uh, Melio Gloriosis, which would Ho- Howard Thompson's character, and the the troll, and my very first character, Ragnar, who okay. made so- it to fourth level and died heroically, but uh, he had, <laughs> had a good death.
0: As all good heroes do. Um, So when you were using miniatures, I mean, it sounds like it was more of a sort of representational thing rather than a proper positional game at that time, and and you wanted to do more with that. Here's my little
1: guy. Here's what he looks like.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things that always, I've always really enjoyed about Malay, um, and I have to admit I'm a relative newcomer to it because I got involved through the Legacy Edition, but actually the thing I was really impressed by was the the fact that weapons can be dropped and thrown and then recovered later and all that kind of detail. Uh, why did you go down that route?
1: It never occurred to me not to.
0: Right. So you're just looking for that sort of sense of verisimilitude, you know, the, the sort yes. of fantasy realism. Okay. Yes. Um, and obviously the game came with sort of monster, you know, a few monsters and bits and pieces as well. So yes. it gave people those choices. All right. So what was the journey through Wizards towards the um, Into the Labyrinth book? Well,
1: Wizards came out and sold very well indeed. Mm-hmm. And uh, Meta Gaming wanted me to do a whole role-playing game. In the process of that, uh, I came to my parting of the ways with metagaming because right. I, work, I worked too slowly, and uh, they they wanted. In, in in retrospect, I completely sympathize. Yeah. I, I I still take my side, but I understand. <laughs> I understand very well their side. They wanted it a set this year and not next year. But I thought that some corners were cut in production that shouldn't have been. And part of the reason for doing the legacy edition was to say, fine, we will not only not cut those corners, we will find new corners and go around them as well.
0: (laughs) Okay, Uh, obviously, the the Intel Labyrinth makes it the full role playing experience Um, that that has been so well received over the years, but obviously went out of print for, well, 30 odd years or so. Was that? I mean, looking back on it, I know that there are a few things that with the Legacy Edition you tweaked. What sort of stuff stood out to you over those years as needing a
2: fix?
1: The most important fix had to do with character advancement. All right. It proved that if a group played the same characters for literally years and years and years, mm. advancement got a little bit out of control and mm. high-level characters began to to be not only super powerful but but very similar because Mm. they would eventually exhaust the possibilities of uh, advancement. Mm. Uh, They would all have impossible IQ, impossible DX, impossible Mm. strength, and they would know all the abilities.
0: So So that's something that you addressed um, in the recent reissue. Yes. OK, I was always curious about the magic system, if I may, because um, that's that's yeah, that thing where, you know, you have the spells that are, are leveled by IQ. So you have to have a minimum IQ to learn that spell. And then yeah. obviously your IQ also defines how many spells you can have. Yes. Um, how did you come up with that?
1: I don't recall. Um, I needed a way to organize spells, mm-hmm. and D&D organizes spells by level, which is very administratively convenient. Yeah. But doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the real world, uh-huh. uh, as if there were a real world where they were matched. <laughs> but, uh, but, but perhaps, perhaps my, my feeling is clear, even if my words are muddled. And I wanted an administrative convenience with which to organize spells and settled on IQ, but I don't remember the thought process.
2: Yeah,
0: okay. Um, I always got a sense that the, the spell progression, I mean, through the fantasy trip and also looking through into GURPS as well, you know, that's a lot more, I, I always felt a little bit more considered than Dungeons & Dragons. I get the feeling that D&D, they they'd kind of like, you know, invented things on the fly, it, well, it, you definitely, was, you definitely well, have that.
1: It, it was the first. We have to forgive them for making things up on the fly.
0: Yeah, it's not a complaint. I'm just saying, you know, I, I liked the way there was a sort of sense of progression with what you were doing. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess that again, that was a fair innovation at the time. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You said you kind of t- came to a sort of a meeting, a po- sorry, a parting of the ways with Meta Gaming. So, what led you to set up SJ Games and sort of? Well,
1: 18- um, I purchased the Space Gamer magazine and ran it because I, I've always been interested in journalism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And game journalism is is fun if you're a gamer. So yeah. metagaming did not want to own the Space Gamer anymore because it didn't make very much money, but I thought it right. would be a great deal of fun. Yeah, And so I did what my journalism school professor's had taught me not to do and I bought myself a job
2: <laughs> uh, okay
1: after a while I decided okay we could have some games as well
2: mm. and
1: started doing business as Steve Jackson games rather than just as the space gamer yeah eventually incorporated and the rest is ancient history
0: yeah now, I, I've be recently been going back and looking at the early starting point of GURPS. Um, so as we sort of talk about role-playing games a little bit, I thought I'd like to ask a couple of things. Um, so obviously with first edition GURPS, before you get to first edition in that box set, you got man-to-man, and then there was a series of sort of follow-on, for one of a better word, adventures that went with that.
1: Adventures, yes, like Warwick like Slayer.
0: Yeah, and I was always... I, I mean, I saw, again, a parallel with, you know, Malay, um, that kind of like, let's do the combat first... And then move forward. Was that the reason, a similar kind of approach, the reason for doing that?
1: Yes, it was. Uh, the, it worked with melee. It seemed as though it should work for gurps as well.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that you know it, the impression I'm having have here is that you know, getting the combat system right is absolutely vital in your mind.
1: Yes, it is. Okay. I want to. I want to be able to see where everything is, and All then right. we, then we'll talk about what it can do.
0: Yeah, so with Gerps, I mean, what was the idea there? Um, where, where where was your thinking at the time?
1: Well, the idea <laughs> was that I didn't own the fantasy trip anymore and had no uh, no chance of getting it back, but right. I still had some role playing to write.
2: Yeah.
1: So I start over.
0: Okay, and just all picked it up from there, really. Yes. Let's fast forward to the Legacy Edition, if that's okay with you. Um, why? Yeah. um, I mean, obviously, getting the rights, um, uh, that seems probably quite a sudden thing, at least on the outside. Was that a long process for you or short or was
1: a very, very long process? Uh, Okay. the the laws that let a creator recover rights are relatively new. I think that I think they go 10 or 12 years back now, maybe more time flies. Yeah. But in fairness to the publisher who owns the rights, you have to give long notice. Right, It wouldn't do for a creator to pop up and say, well, 33 years or whatever it is has passed, and now I own Superman and you don't give me Superman. No. Uh, the, the publisher has to have time to close out his own operations in a reasonable way so yes we gave notice and worked through the process but then it was done
0: so why did you want to do that why did you want to create the legacy edition
1: because i could
0: okay but like the mountain it's there so let's yeah. do it i just don't know whether was it the, the sort of first love thing as well was there any of yeah. that yes uh, yeah yeah
1: the fantasy trip is still a much easier game for beginners than yeah. they they fit in different places in the ecosystem as it were
0: yeah I mean that's something that very much for me has been of interest because obviously this podcast focuses on encouraging people you know to get back to the gaming table um, you know people drop out of the hobby for all sorts of reasons uh, usually for a lot of time and um, I always felt that you know the the, the legacy would well, the reason I backed it was simply that thought of wow i can introduce people to role playing in a much more straightforward way and still use those d6 um you know my love of gurps comes from using the 3d6 roll low and of course the fantasy trip has that as a sort of almost that as a central thing you do have that wonderful drop of dice in but i
1: feel that the 3d6 is the perfect bell curve for for the kind of things that you usually want to try in a role-playing game.
0: Right, okay. So do you, you don't um, particularly like the... I mean, a lot of people who play d go on about the, the linear progression of a D20 being nice and predictable at 5% increments. Um, what is it about bell curves?
1: Wow, that probably gets to an aspect of my psychology that I haven't examined. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like bell curves. Uh, I did consider moving over to a d20 in those five percent increments mm-hmm. when i was considering a second edition uh fantasy trip but i right. decided not to
0: it's something about I, I mean i like them too so i guess we're on the same psychological ground but um that's fine how did it feel bringing it back it's a well-loved game but how it did was it feel
1: marvelous yeah. it was marvelous i got so much support from the fan base
0: mm. And and they seem to have taken the message out as well and really um, evangelized for it, I guess.
1: Yes. Uh, I don't know if you are a user of Discord. Yes, I am. There's a fantasy trip Discord set up (laughs) by a user who goes by Tolancar. Yeah. Which which is funny. And uh, it's (laughs) a a busy place a lot of the time.
0: Uh, One of the things that uh, struck me about the the fantasy trip was the inclusion of solo adventures as well um so this is sort of you know going back over the span of years you had death test and there's death test 2 in the legacy edition um, which i believe both those come from the early days yes, and then
1: those were the
0: first yeah and then obviously with the current kickstarter is doing another one and i know that uh douglas cole has produced uh, some adventures the Five Perilous Journeys, and I, th- I believe he's playing on doing some solos as well, uh, obviously under license. So what is it about the solo game that you made you want to do that as well?
1: Because sometimes you have no one to play against.
0: Mm.
1: And I mean, there's a need. Yeah. The
2: first
1: solos were, were games like my British namesake, Steve Jackson, and his partner Ian Livingston, the Fighting mm-hmm. Fantasy games. And before that, Tunnels and Trolls did Mm. solo adventures.
0: And was, I mean, was an influence there coming from Ken? Because I know that you obviously worked back with him, um, back with Monsters, Monsters. Yes. Um, So is that, was that the influence through over the years?
1: Probably. Yeah. Solos are such an obviously good idea once you're introduced to them. I'm just surprised that there are not more
0: yeah absolutely and again a wonderful way in for someone returning you know you can actually learn i mean i find it's the way of learning a game you know you pull out you, i think it's actually in the legacy edition isn't it you know pull out a copy of malay run a couple of combats and then you know get yourself into death test and take yourself through that and um, you will learn this game you know it's really really powerful thing
1: solos are difficult to write no question about
0: it what makes them difficult
1: uh Because you need to be able to reveal information slowly to keep Mm -hmm. them exciting. And then you have the mechanical process of scrambling all the paragraphs when you're done. Yeah. If that's done wrong, the game will be unplayable.
0: Right. And, of course, you did that with GURPS as well. You included a solo adventure in the third edition, at least. Um, Yeah. Again, same rationale, I presume, like partly to teach it and partly to allow people to play, get themselves in there. Precisely. So it's, it's obvious that all the way through this process, you're thinking about you know the user. Um, do you think that's something that the games design companies do enough of?
1: I think that it's something that these successful companies have to do. Right. A, a creator who has brilliant ideas but doesn't, doesn't play test doesn't think of the way people will actually use his game mm. is probably not going to get much success if he what, does he's very lucky
0: yeah yeah what do you make of all the sort of do-it-yourself scene um these days there's an awful lot isn't there you know drive-through rpg filled with you know people doing their own stuff uh what do you make of all of that good thing
1: yes it it expands the hobby it lets you have the fun in you know, the since I make prototypes for my own games, I've always had the fun of, of cutting the paper and gluing the glue and so on and so on. Mm. And I totally understand if other people want to do it.
0: You feel the re-release has been well-received? Yes. What were the clues there then? I mean, were you surprised?
1: Um, I wasn't terribly surprised because I knew it was good. But I was, I was a little surprised uh, and I was very gratified.
0: Yeah, and um, obviously it's, it's continued to have the drip through of, of further products as The Adventures and The Undead Now.
1: One, uh, one thing that has happened that has pleased me very greatly is that we're seeing some new authors. It's, mm. it, it's neat that... So many of the old authors are still working and still want to do stuff with the fantasy trip, but mm. new people are also appearing, some great talents.
0: Yeah, it's good. It's encouraging, isn't it, to sort of see the game move forward as well. Yes.
2: Um
0: Okay. I, I want to ask the $10 million question that listeners will probably want me to ask, which is do you still play role-playing games?
1: Not as much as I would like. Okay. Um when I'm developing something I play for playtest reasons, mm-hmm. but that's never in the context of a whole campaign. And when I'm at a convention, I will do a pickup game of just about anything I'm asked to, mm. but I don't participate in an ongoing campaign.
0: Right, okay. And why do you do convention stuff? Uh, is that purely promotional, or do you no, love it really?
1: We, <laughs> because I I like to Uh, always get promotional value out of it. They pay for themselves promotionally. But if I didn't like them, I wouldn't go. I know people who force themselves to go to conventions Mm. and I always say, stay at home and write or stay at home and sleep. Send somebody who
0: will enjoy it. Yeah, it's a very, uh, very sort of, specific experience isn't it um yes. previous previous uh, incarnation of me long before i was a school teacher i worked for games workshop uh, you know tabletop miniatures uh, company and used to run their games day show over in the uk oh yeah
1: um,
0: i um, made
1: it to a games day once i had a good time
0: yeah good good shows but i can remember them being incredibly intense and um my experience of going to origins back in uh, last time i was there about 2004 i think um but uh you know again very intense sort of shows and i'm, I'm with you on the you have to want to go right <laughs> um but the, your games have always been represented at those kind of big those big shows you know i remember um you know, getting a game of GURPS. I remember getting a game of um, games like Ogre and things like that at various shows I've been to in the past. So it's interesting that there's an immense longevity to the, the games that you have created. Why do you, why do you think that is?
1: Well, modesty aside, some of it is because those are good. Yeah. I've designed a lot of games that people don't talk about anymore, Some of it is because I'm still around personally to push them and support them.
0: Mm. And of course, Steve Jackson Games does an immense array of games. You know, I guess the flagship is probably Munchkin, a very innovative thing in itself. And uh, I think of games like Illuminata and then down through into sort of Car Wars and and Ogre and things like that, and then through into the role-playing scene. Is that about sort of having a breadth in your business so that you can appeal... You know, very broadly or is that because you just love games generally
1: got it in one right <laughs> when i see a new style of game i want to know if that's something i can do and the right. best way to find out is to try and see yeah and if it's good then i have something published for.
0: how do you feel role playing fits into the the sort of catalog going forward for you
1: oh it'll it'll definitely be there
0: hmm you've always um, sort of maintained that support for the like GURPS and now obviously for the fantasy trip through the years and through, um, as I can imagine, quite difficult times as well. Just kind of that sense of you have a commitment to your product that um, is a little bit more than, you know, purely business. Is that well, an imp- a wrong impression?
1: It's my life.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, just It's just nice to sort of, I don't know, understand the rationale and understand the thinking, you know, it's an important thing. Um, I'm talking, you know, I'm, you know, the listeners here, you know, I've got a lot of gamers, you know, very committed role players who are involved in the community, but there's a lot of people who will be listening, You know, I'm hoping anyway, fingers crossed, they're those ex-gamers. They hover on the edge of getting back to the gaming table. I know that one size doesn't fit all, but have you got any kind of general advice for someone who's thinking about, you know, stepping back into the scene? Where would you start?
1: Well, it would depend on whether... I could make contact with any of my gaming friends from the old days, and I'd I'd certainly wonder what they were doing now. Yeah. If that wasn't possible, I would uh, start hanging around my friendly local game store.
0: (laughs) that does not exist over there in the States.
1: Not right now in the uh, plague-ridden year of our Lord 2020, but, (laughs) but... Game shops and uh, over there, I think more than here, gaming clubs are are the best way. It is a social activity. And if you Mm. have if you've backed away and you're trying to get back, start by socializing.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. Thank you.
1: And, And of course, conventions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we've got some huge ones, um, yes. you know, uh, sort of increasingly across Europe now. I think, you know, um, I, th- I think about the uh, Games Expo in, in Birmingham is probably one of the, the sort of premier ones. You get over to those?
1: Uh, very rarely. I do plan to go to the next uh, Games Expo in Birmingham, Wow! Uh, assuming that they're able to run it on the new schedule. Mm. I'm really looking forward to that. I'll see some people I haven't
0: seen in a long time. Yeah. What do you think, um, you know, for the older game with disposable cash and a bit of a family, what do you think are the best games to maybe throw in front of your kids? Um, you know, you've got that, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 year old, bored during COVID-19, want to play a game. Any, anything you'd recommend from the catalogue?
1: Oh, definitely Munchkin. If, uh, if you've got kids that age, they're the perfect, uh, perfect age to learn it. Yeah, it's a game from Looney labs called flux yep. that uh i really enjoy and that's that's oh. another one to play with the family
0: yeah absolutely my wife and i like flux actually ah. that's coming out this weekend <laughs> how do you feel about the rise of uh dungeons and dragons the last few years i mean how has that impacted you the rising
1: tide <laughs> raises all boats
0: how has it impacted steve jackson games Has that uh genuinely seen an uptick for you
1: uh, I think so. Yes, uh, it it's gotten role playing really. I mean, it's it's really part of culture now. Mm. Uh, people understand D and D references even if they've never played.
0: And I guess that comes from the movie stuff as well, doesn't it? Um, you know, all those frustrated gamers from the early '80s who now run the the big corporations and uh, are producing like Marvel and and they Lord of the Rings.
1: Huge crossover between comic culture and gaming culture. Yes,
0: mm.
1: not all the same people, but we all we we can all speak similar languages.
0: No, absolutely. I would like to ask what you think the real value of role playing games has been, because you were there at the beginning um, and you've seen it through. So, you know, what's been the value of it?
1: Well, the value of it to the Socially inept young teenagers, it can save your life. Right. It, it can show you that you're not alone and it can teach you to work. It teaches you not just to work with others like work, but, but cooperating with others is fun. Yeah. Uh, it gets you talking. Uh, it, I have heard from many people over the years who say that without role playing, they they don't think they could have continued. For older players, it's just a great way to stay in touch with friends, and mm-hmm. I mean, games are good.
0: Yeah, give it that excuse, don't they? Let's get around together and you know, shoot a breeze.
1: Yes. Marks, you- you know, loot some gold.
0: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I don't know. I mean, your designs, all like I said, coming back to that thing where you have the, the combat system, you know, that tactical sense of combat at the heart of it. So it's a particular style and approach to play, you know, that has gone in and out of fashion, I suppose, over the years. Um, I mean, you sort of said you had your background in hex and shit games and you sort of brought that through. Do you feel that sometimes the sort of modern designs sort of miss out on that? Um, that aspect of the game.
1: Well some of them are going in a different direction. Yes, I I find yeah. it frustrating sometimes when I look at a modern role-playing game and I say oh Look at the look at the innovative ways that they have to interact with the other players You have have games where you trade off playing Playing the same character and so on a lot of that is is really interesting but I still think combat is interesting and some of those mm-hmm. tend to wave that off.
0: I guess in the end it's a bit of taste.
1: Yes. It's uh, why the French have a hundred kinds of cheese.
0: <laughs> I wanted to ask about Sidri, um, which is the campaign world for the fantasy trip. And uh, yes. sort of um, sitting here talking to you about it. It sort of occurs to me that that is a gigantic fantasy science fantasy, I suspect uh, sort of world. How did you come up with that idea?
1: Um, certainly uh, influenced by various science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to create a background that could encompass anything that people wanted. Mm-hmm. I wanted something that could be so big that if you cared to, you could say, well, my my campaign is tucked in a corner of Seedry. Mm. And uh, one day I might go through a gate and meet some of the people that I've been reading about in the books.
0: I got the sense that you can pretty much do what you want again with the fantasy trip. Um, not in the same way as with Goetz, where that is about you know tinkering and, and making it absolutely your own. But it seems an inclusive setting. Was that always the intention?
1: It, it's intended to be inclusive, yes. it It wants it wants you know as though a a system could want something i wanted when i created the system something that a lot of people could play in something that would be friendly to beginners but not boring to experienced players
0: brilliant i really really am grateful for the conversation we've had today thank you so much for taking the time to do that
1: well it was a good talk thank you for asking me
0: no, it, it's great. And um, obviously this came about because I have um, a bunch of patrons who, who, when I asked them, you know, we got to a goal, you were who they asked for. Um, I think that um, there's something about Steve Jackson games that I kind of wanted to say thank you for, really, uh, for my life. You know, I've been through, uh, so really getting into gaming around about 79, 80 um, in terms of what you do. I was wargaming with my dad from about age six um you know playing those spi games playing the avalon hill games you know um but i remember discovering ogre gv and then moving on through you know car wars and so on through into gurps and and, out the other side and um i guess i maybe i i hope i maybe speak for many listeners here just you know feel a great appreciation for the designs that you've done and all of that work and it just want to have that opportunity to say thank you you know thank you
1: you're welcome, and thank you for making it possible for me to live the dream.
0: Yeah, play play games, write games, and sell them. That was what you wanted to do. Yep. Anything that you would um, like to add, or or se- or say, or sort of share in terms of your own sort of where you're at right now?
1: Uh, well, there's more fantasy trip coming, and. If in your campaign you come across something, you find you've created something interesting. Remember, we are open to new writers. Right. So you can uh, you can get in on the phone
0: Great. So people just like head up SJ Games and uh, follow the information on there.
1: Yes, we've there's a lot of writers information on the website.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for today. And I will bid you adieu. Sounds good. And that's it. Thank you once again to Steve Jackson for graciously coming on to Roleplay Rescue. I found the interview absolutely fascinating and I couldn't have wished for more. Thank you, Steve. During the interview, you'll have heard me mention that the Fantasy Trips Millet is free for download for the duration of the pandemic. You can find that at warehouse23.com. Just click on the free link at the top of Warehouse 23 landing page to access all the goodies, but I'll stick a link in the show notes. That's a great game in itself, and as you'll have gathered, the first step into the wonderful world of the Fantasy Trip role-playing game. Great for giving the kids a taste of gladiatorial combat. Additionally, I mentioned that Steve Jackson Games are currently running a Kickstarter for the latest Fantasy Trip expansion, an undead resource, The Book of Unlife, plus a solo adventure called Red Crypt. As this episode airs on April 12th, 2020, that Kickstarter has five days left to go, so I'll put a link for that in the show notes too, in case you're interested. None of this would have been possible without the generous support of the patrons of Roleplay Rescue through the Patreon at patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Thank you to all of you,
2: and frankly, I'm gonna take the time to list your names. Here goes here then are the Roleplay Rescue Mighty Heroes The Brave Swordbearers, Barry, Dewey, Robertson, John Shaw Jason Connolly, Nick Lockwood, and Mark Graham. The brave shield bearers Christopher Marvin, Mike Bowers, Tim Baker, Old Scouser Roleplaying, Pure Mongrel, Aaron Barkley, Tim Shorts, and Frank L. Turfler Jr. And the proud torch bearers Bob Pianca, Glenn Robinson, William Ayers, Zachary Beer, Armchair Pimp, Shane Denota Hoffman, Goblins Henchman, Andrew Sutton. Yuho Rutila, The Armchair Adventurers, Brian Miller, Reese Laundry, Spencer, a.k.a. Free Thrall, Hobbs and Friends, Darren Green, Edwin King, Peter Skaines, Christian Richards, and Vance Atkins. Thank you, all of you. Game on.
0: I hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode of Roleplay Rescue. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me on the journey as we blaze into Season 6. If you're a new listener, consider delving into the back catalogue and seeing what you make of past episodes. Season 1 was a long time ago now, but there are still some diamonds hidden away in there. And even if just listening to like-minded folks witter on about role-playing games sounds appealing, come and join the community. On that note, I'm going to sign off. Don't forget, because we are an anchor podcast, you can drop me a voice message if you have any comments or questions, and the links are all in the show notes. Your contributions really do make this a better podcast and if you've enjoyed listening to Steve please consider sharing the episode on social media. I'm Che Webster, this is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again on the flip side. Game on!